Welcome to Category Visionaries, the show dedicated to exploring exciting visions for the future from the founders who are on the front lines building it. In each episode, we'll speak with a visionary founder who's building a new category or reimagining an existing one. We'll learn about the problem they solve, how their technology works, and unpack their vision for the future. I'm your host, Brett Stapper, CEO of Frontlines Media. Now let's dive right into today's episode. Hey, everyone, and thanks for listening. Today, I'm speaking with Pascal Weinberger, CEO and founder of Bardeen, a no-code workflow automation platform that's raised over $18 million in funding. Pascal, thanks for chatting with me today. Hey, thanks so much, Brad. Pleasure to be here today. Yeah, no problem. So before we begin talking about what you're building at Bardeen, let's start with a quick summary of who you are and a bit more about your background. Yeah, sure. So my personal story started with computer vision, started contributing to some open source projects, then sort of kind of got sucked into the entrepreneurial and startup world pretty quickly. Started my first company in the computer vision space, you know, and ended up like selling the IP wasn't a big deal, but kind of got me hooked on this whole idea of like, you know, starting companies and building products and so on. So then fast forward a few jobs and uh, ideas later, um, I uh, basically identified this problem together with a a friend, uh, Artem, my co-founder, where we kind of identified that like, we had like really cool jobs, you know, like ourselves. And we were like, you know, there's so much cool work we can do, but we spend half of our time like copy pasting data between different tabs around. And that's like made no sense to us. So that's when we kind of like set out to start Bardeen. But yeah, that's a short story. Got it. And before we start diving into Bardeen, I'd love to understand a bit more about what makes you tick as an entrepreneur and as a founder. So if you had to go through your Audible list and choose one book that's had the greatest impact, what would it be? Yeah, one book is really hard. I love learning from other people, especially like autobiographies are like really, really cool for me to sort of like learn about the struggle and the lessons from other founders and people who built interesting things. If I had to pick one that I also read recently, I would say like what it takes from the founder of Blackstone, which is just kind of a very interesting story around persistence and how they got rejected over and over and over again and never gave up and then kind of built just like huge empire in the investment world. So yeah, I think this uh, takeaway one persistence is a pretty important one for me. Nice. I'll have to check that out. I think that's a company that everyone knows, but I don't know anything about them. other than Yeah, exactly. Massive. Exactly. And it's uh, the interesting thing is like Blackstone kind of like not spun out, but like one of the per- people from Blackstone then founded BlackRock which is like the biggest investment fund ever. So it's kind of like also this whole idea of like how you build great leaders in your company and so on. So it's very interesting. Totally nice. recommend. Nice. I'll have to check that out. And now to dive into Bardeen a bit more, and I know you just touched on it there, but let's talk about you know how the solution works and a, and a bit more about that problem that you guys are trying to address. Yeah, sure. So I don't know if you like look at your browser right now, like how many tabs do you have open? And like, you know, I personally, I have like at least 30 different tabs open, different tools from like Slack, Gmail, Calendar, GitHub, you know, Atlassian, Jira, like Google Sheets, bunch of different tools we use in our everyday lives. And we often find ourselves sort of copy pasting different data, different you know items and um, tasks and whatnot uh, between all these different tools. And if you think about it, sort of from first principles, we're kind of acting like this uh, routing mechanisms between all those different webbers. And, and that's just like kind of makes no sense. They should be taking care of that for us. And what we're building at Bardeen is really kind of a solution to that problem where we try to connect all those different services with each other and make it very easy for users to one sort of like fully automate workflows between them, but also 
kind of remove all this friction from your workflows around copy pasting data from say, you know, like a LinkedIn profile if you're a recruiter into that, you know, air table where you keep track of the people that you want to talk to and so on. So you can think of it as like, I mean, we've, we've had it described as like the macros of the internet, you know, like what you can do in a Excel macro, but across all different web apps. So that's a very sort of high level description of what we're trying to build here. Got it. And then how does this differ from, you know, maybe something like a general purpose tool like Zapier? Sure. So, I mean, this, this automation category as a whole, you know, there's sort of like two existing subcategories, if you will. One is this sort of like trigger-based automations where, you know, you name Zapier, there's if this, then that, trade.io, make.com from an Integromat. There's like, you know, 50 probably tools that we could all name now that are, you know, on high level, somewhat like something happens in tool one, do something tool B. And that's sort of fairly uh, trivial automations. And it's kind of just like purely reactive workflows that we all know. On the other hand, you have much more complicated automation tools like UiPath and all those like heavy RPA enterprise type of solutions, which allow you to do much more complicated and much more powerful workflows. But they're also fairly complicated and expensive tools to use. What we're trying to build with Bardeen is kind of like in the middle of those two, where it allows you to do sort of purely trigger-based things like the Zapier does. But mm-hmm. more importantly, we also allow you to operate on the context that you're currently in. To give you a concrete example of that, say you're like recruiting people to talk to for your podcast here, right? Like I imagine you're probably like going through Crunchbase or like some other tool mm-hmm. where you find like, okay, what are the cool companies that have recently raised funding or, you know, are trying to build a new category. And then mm-hmm. you take some of the data and you put it in some sort of a notion or Airtable, or Google Sheets, or whatever system of record you use. And then you probably like also want to reach out to them via email. So you need to like enrich some of the data from the companies and so on. And that type of workflow, today, you can't automate with a Zapier. You kind of have to build your own script for that. And like, right, actually, like the very first prototypes of Badin, we kind of like hacked little browser extensions together to do that sort of work. But what we can do with Badin is we can access the screen that like the website you're currently on. So in that case, like a Crunchbase profile of a company. And we can then take that data for you and send it to the different services that you've specified, which then would allow you to automate that workflow that we just talked about end-to-end with one click. So that's kind of like, in a nutshell, the, the high level of the solution. Got it. Interesting. And then what's the target market or who are you targeting today? As of today, most of the functionality is very like horizontal. So we build integrations with, this point is roughly 50 of the most commonly used uh, SaaS applications from Notion to Google Sheets to Slack to Google Drive, you name it. And then those you can use for different types of workflows from recruiting, project management, sales. We see some like marketers using it, but we also have people who go to high school, you know, use it to automate, you know, keeping their study notes up to date. And those, you know, all sorts of different like long tail as we say, use cases. So the specific like target personas are very varying. As of today, most of the users work like within small teams at small companies or within, you know, freelancers, startups, or like teams within larger organizations. But it's kind of like a very much bottoms up SaaS motion that we're, that we're going for. Got it. And then do you have an enterprise sales team at all or sales assisted process or is it 100% product led growth here? Yeah, as of today, it's 100% PLG, so product-led growth motion. There's no sales team, nothing. What we do is community support. So we have a fairly active Slack channel with community members that we 
all of us from the team kind of actively support. And then we also have like email support and so on for users, but we don't have any sort of, you know, as you would know, like customer success type of function or sales type of function in traditional logs. And are you like a diehard believer in product-led growth as the way to take an idea to market? Or is that, you know, just currently what you guys are doing and eventually that's going to change? It's a very good question. So for me personally, this is the first time we're doing, or I'm doing like a PLG type company. Previously, we did enterprise sales. And to be perfectly honest, I was just kind of like fed up with the enterprise sales motion, especially as you're building the first version of the product. Like you have to go through like a month's long sales cycle. Everyone kind of is happy and says it's great until it comes to the moment where they have to sign and wire the money. At that point, you like you have very like intransparent decision processes. You don't really understand why, you know, if people don't end up buying your product, you don't really understand why they didn't end up buying your product. Was it because their budget changed or was it because your solution isn't right for them? Like it's very hard to learn from sort of traditional sales model versus with PLG. What we get is we get like immediate feedback from our users. So we can obviously track the conversion rates across the whole funnel. Um, you know, you see the website, you see the, in our case, the automations. And we can see like, okay, what is it that people actually want to get? And then also once you've got it, individual users are much more, how do you say that? They're much more likely to give you direct feedback. So at this point, we have like 1,500 people on the Slack channel. Every day we get like various ideas and like a lot of feedback and bug reports and all those different things that help us improve the product at a much, much faster pace than what we could ever do with a traditional sales motion. Now, having said that, obviously for this automation type of product, in the very long term, I think like the big, big markets are really in the enterprise. Like they have the most inefficient processes. They have the most people. So, so like long term, we 100% have to go for an enterprise motion. For now, we kind of want to take it like as much with the product that go motion as we can. And even then, there's a bunch of companies like Slacks or even like Jira type of products from Atlassian that have come a very, very long way, even into the enterprise sales with a very strong product-led growth motion. And then usually at some point, you start to add like sales enablement type of motion where you have, you know, sales, customer success, those types of functions that now upsell people who have, you know, signed up to the PLG motion. But I would say like as of today, with what we know today and what we've seen so far in this journey, I would say I'm more of a PLG diehard fan, as you named it, rather than a traditional sales model. So you have a PLG tattoo on your arm then? <laughs> Not yet. Maybe soon. <laughs> yeah, coming back. <laughs> Any commitments around that. <laughs> <laughs> and how did you go about you know, instilling PLG as a mindset into your culture? That's one thing that I've you know, been reading a lot about lately is everyone's you know, talking about PLG and you know, it's easy to like write down a PLG strategy, but to really be effective, you need to get the entire company to really you know, embrace that as a culture and a way of doing business and a way of thinking. So what have you done to you know, get your team to really buy in and believe in PLG? Yeah, it's a very, very important point you touched on. I would say sort of as a preface that there's still a lot we and any other company in the PLG space, I think, uh, are experimenting with this. Some things that we've done that worked pretty well is we kind of like, so we have this Slack channel where everyone in the team, all the engineers, everyone is part of that Slack channel too. So everyone directly sees what people are saying. If there's a new bug that gets reported by a user, like we all kind of see it. And like, usually you have this like responsibility if you're the engineer and you know that like, you know, this is like the part of the code base that you've touched in the past. 
like we see a lot of times where then they just jump in for support for that user, you know, and you don't have this like support team in the middle that now has to like file a bug and then like it almost never ends up with the right engineer. And like there's a lot of like friction in those processes versus if you just have like one place where everyone in the community comes together, that makes it a lot easier. We also look at like user feedback as a team all the time. So in our sprint planning and sprint review meetings, there's always like a place where we talk about like, hey, what's the user feedback this week? What are the bugs that people are blocked by? What are the feature requests that people are asking for? And like all those types of things uh, to make sure that like as a team, especially from an engineering and product part of the company, we stay as close to the user base as we possibly can. Same thing with like user interview calls. So we try to do a lot of like calls with our users where we just kind of like onboard them and we kind of see what are the friction points for them, what are the things that they're interested in, what are they not so interested in, and so on. So we do that, especially in the beginning, everyone on the team did it. Now we kind of, you know, we have a few people in the team who are more dedicated to user type of support functions, but everyone still looks at them and we share all those resources within the team. So I think those are some methods that we've used that worked well in the past to stay as close to the user as we possibly can. There's a few other ideas that we're like playing around with now that working as, as well as we hope they would. But yeah, those are sort of like tried and true techniques for us. Yeah, I don't think you'd be the first entrepreneur to say that, you know, tried something that didn't go according to plan. <laughs> yeah, I think also that's maybe like, honestly, in this whole PLG, I mean, it's not necessarily only true in PLG type companies, but I think uh, because the speed at which you get feedback from users is so fast, this whole like learning loop is, I think, like at this point, one of the most important things that we're optimizing for in the company. Where I truly believe that, like in the long term, like even if today you know there's maybe a competitor who might have more integrations than we have or something like that, in the long term, I really believe that whoever can learn the fastest as a team from the user will win. And that's really something that we're optimizing. You know, our processes, our culture, everything in the company. So we really want that thought around like, okay, how do we make sure we close this learning loop and we have that feedback cycle as quickly as we possibly can? Mm, interesting. Nice. And that's really helpful advice, I think, for anyone pursuing PLG. Yeah. And that honestly, to me, was, as I said in the beginning, that was one of the big motivators for going. There's a lot of downsides with PLG, right? Like with PLG, it's like much harder to monetize early on. It's, there's a lot more sort of like things you need to figure out. Like individual users are a lot less forgiving than maybe an enterprise contract, where with an enterprise contract, if the UI is not that great and your website isn't like crystal clear, like if you can do a proof of concept and show that like there's some value in your product, very often you can get some company to sign up for like a fairly nice ACV contract and like, you know, go from there. With PLG type motions, you really don't have that. Like people are very unforgiving and there's so much like things that are competing for attention with your end users. Like they could also just like hang out on Instagram or on TikTok, you know, <laughs> but like they now, now we have to like fight for their attention and make sure that like, Hey, you know, here's this tool that can help you save time in your daily workflows. And like now you have to obviously invest like a little bit of time up front to, you know, install it, get to know the workflows find the right automations for you, maybe customize them, set them up. And like mm -hmm. that time that they have to invest in the beginning, you know, if you do a product like growth motion, now you're competing against all the other like attention grabbers out, right? Versus if you did an enterprise sort of type sales motion, 
then it's just, okay, now you're competing against maybe two or three competitors that are bidding for the same contract. But it's a much easier battle to win versus with PLG, that's very unforgiving. So yeah, there's a lot of advantages, but you also have to realize that there's a lot of you know things that you have to optimize much earlier in the process than you would t- do in a traditional sales model. Yeah, and I think those are the types of things no one ever talks about, right? All you ever read about are you know, the benefits of PLG. There's not a lot out there that I've seen, at least, you know, talking about the downsides, the challenges, and you know, how to navigate all of that. Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, as with everything in life, there's always two sides to the coin. You know, there's always like a bright, shiny upside. I think with PLG, again, for me, it's really like speed of learning, the, how close you are to customer, how true the feedback is that you're getting, and all those things. Downsides, obviously, is fight for attention. You have to have a much higher sort of attention to detail. People are much less forgiving than companies, et cetera, et cetera. So I think those are sort of the things that you have to weigh as a, founder and think about like for the problem i'm going after is it really worth it and what's the long-term game here right so in our case the long-term game is we think that we want to bring out like for us it's like the mission is we want to bring automation to everyone and for you to do that you have to be customer centric and you have to make it very easy for every individual to use and understand your product so in the long term we have to solve those problems anyways so that's when we said like, okay, we might as well do it in the beginning and go for PLG versus there's a lot of other companies out there that I can think of where you never ever have to solve these problems and then PLG might not be the right motion for you. Mm, got it. Makes sense. And changing gears here a little bit, and I know you touched on that earlier. What are your thoughts around the idea of category creation and just in general, you know, how are you trying to position yourself, you know, in this landscape of a lot of different tools that are, you know, probably using, you know, very similar words to describe what they do? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I think for us, we think of ourselves as kind of like creating a new category of proactive automation. There's this, again, there's sort of traditionally the heavy RPA category, top-down enterprise sales, difficult to use tools big ACV contracts, but very powerful automation. And then on the other side, you have the easy to use or somewhat easy to use, I should say, but like fairly limiting automation tools in the sort of trigger-based automation category. And then there's all this thing in between where it uses your contacts, it's easy to use, but also powerful. Like that's kind of like the category we're trying to establish. We haven't seen that many products out there kind of going after this same market because it's really hard. Like now you have to do a lot of computation at the edge, which makes it always very difficult. We are like fortunate to have a team that has spent all their lives like trying to build like vast distributed compute operating systems. So like they really know what they're doing in the space, but it's a really, really, really hard problem to solve. And that's why I think like as a founder, it's almost always easier to go after an existing category and sort of do incremental improvement over an existing product versus kind of really coming up with the step function improvement of a whole new type of product that hasn't existed before. But that's kind of like what we're trying to do with Buddy. You think category design is kind of like PLG in a sense, right? Where everyone talks about the benefits and how amazing it is and how cool it is to create a category, but go ahead and try to create one and you'll find out it's really hard and very difficult to actually pull off. Yeah, it's very hard. (laughs) There's also these like one thing that I think in our journey of the last two years, I've vastly underestimated is the notion of a story and words. 
and sort of like with my technical background and like my co-founder is also a very, very technical for us, it was always difficult to really describe what we're doing. I should say it still is sometimes difficult to describe what we're doing. And that, if you're really trying to establish something new, that almost becomes one of the most important things where like the words you're using, and you said it beautifully before, there's like other companies are using, quote, the same words as we do, unquote. It's like, yeah, because we maybe don't have the right words to describe what it is that we're actually doing versus if you have the right words, then it becomes so powerful and people can like, really grasp this concept much better. So I think that's something that like for all the technical founders out there who are thinking mm -hmm. about creating a category, I wish I had known this before and had spent a lot more time on this in the early days. And now we're kind of like playing catch up where like we have a bunch of even like concept terms in our product, like playbooks and autobooks and so on that like we just kind of like came up with as technical terms, but like it's really hard for people to understand what's going on. And you have to do a really, really thoughtful job around all these words and terminology and stories within your product especially when you're building something completely new so yeah that's i think like one thing that i completely underestimated in the beginning totally and i see that a lot with technical founders in general right i think typically technical founders want to just talk about you know, the capabilities and the technical aspects of what the product can do and it's almost like i you know hear a lot of founders who like live in this world where they believe like if you just build the best product they will come and like unfortunately like a lot of times they don't come. Whereas, you know, mm -hmm. the other founders do that, but then they tell this amazing story and this amazing strategic narrative around what they're building. And then that's the product that gets adopted, even if it's maybe not as, you know, good as the other ones, a better story does, you know, win in the end. That's true. That's true. I think like we never had the naivety of like, oh, build it and they will come. We started investing fairly early into like content, blog, you know, YouTube channel, like all those types of different mediums where people who are looking for automations for specific use cases can find us fairly quickly. And that's sort of like one of those like big compounding effects, right? And like, you have to start early with those things because it takes a very, very long time to sort of build critical mass where it really starts to pay off. We're slowly starting to see some of the like really strong inbound traction coming from those assets that we started building two years ago, mm -hmm. a year and a half ago. But there was also something that, yeah, like exactly as you said, like a lot of peers that I talked to who are also technical founders in the space, they don't think it's relevant to do that in the early days. And then, you know, a year and a half later, they suddenly realized that they need it. But now they need like 18 months to build it up, you know, <laughs> and like that delays everything by a lot. It's not a good place to be in. So, yeah. Totally. And yeah, you mentioned there like, the skill of storytelling. Are there any specific books or you know people that you followed to really you know master that skill or improve that skill, or has it just been you know reading stuff online? Yeah, it's a great question. I so there's this one. I'm blanking the name right now, but like one book that is actually on category creation. I think Win Bigger or something like this. Ah, Play and Bigger by Chris Lockie. Yeah, Play Bigger. Exactly. Yeah, really, really cool book. It isn't as much a guide to like storytelling, but it just kind of like for me, it was very good in like pointing out the things you need to think about. And then there's individual assets you can find online. Like I'm a huge fan of like online courses and like, you know, sometimes YouTube videos, like some people are like really good at like creating really, 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 really high quality YouTube content that's just like out there for free that like I personally really like consuming. Uh, mm -hmm. just to learn and then there's a lot of just like sort of peer coaching that like i you know people in the network like my friends are all at this point almost all founders 
and then you just kind of like talk to each other, give each other feedback. And that's for me, like kind of the most valuable source mm-hmm. of input and support, as well as our investor base. I should also say like they've also been incredibly helpful for mouse seed investors to now series A investors have been like super, super helpful in helping us sort of hone in the narrative. And also sometimes it's not like about the, like how to do it better. It's just like pointing you to the right things to think about. I think as a founder, one thing I learned is there's always like 2000 things on every given day that you could be doing, but it's really only like two or three things that would really move the needle and like learning to identify those few things that really move the needle. That almost becomes one of the most important things you can do. Cause at some point in the limit, you should assume that like your competitors are as smart as you are. They're working as hard as you are. And like at that point, it becomes almost a function of like where you put your focus on how fast you're moving as a company and as a founding team. So I think that's, to me, something that just comes with experience and that experience you get, you know, from people who've done it before, people who have seen it a lot because of their portfolio consisting of hundreds of companies who are trying to solve the same problem. So they they get this pattern recognition and they can ask you the right questions and point you to the right things to think about. And that is almost the most valuable type of advice you can get at this point. And was it hard to get the investors on board with the idea of creating a new category? You know, because that's obviously like a, a very long journey. Um, and I, you know, I've seen some investors who kind of push back on that idea, you know, because it is you know, riskier than you know, just going after an existing category sometimes. So was there any pushback that you had to navigate there? Or were they on board with the idea of creating a category right away? I mean, look, I think we've been extremely lucky from the get-go where our seed investors were super excited about the idea from the beginning we almost kind of like co-ideated and thought about like okay what are the different types of angles of attack for this automation space i think it was very clear to us that like there's a lot of work to do in the automation space in general and like if you start sort of from the end goal where our end goal from day one was like bring automation to everyone then you really think about like okay what are the bottlenecks of adoption today and then again, on one side, you have like, oh, it's too expensive and comes with a consulting team and it's really only accessible to Fortune 500 or Fortune 5000 companies for the RPA space. And then on the other side, it's kind of like limiting. It's still kind of technical and so on. And then like that kind of like starts almost to dictate your product roadmap where you're like, okay, let's solve the hard problems first. Let's really try to bring it to the end user, make it easy, make it powerful at the same time. We invested a lot of time in the beginning in the fundamental architecture and the fundamental sort of like engine of our product and we've always had support from our uh, investors around that from this for the series a ways of course there's a lot of pushback like as you expect as a founder there's you know you have to kind of like talk to hundreds of people and you know 90 plus of them will say no and for various reasons (laughs) and you just kind of have to keep going i think Mm -hmm. the fund that we ended up with now with insight we're like extremely lucky because Pravin, who's on our board now and who was the partner at Inside Leading the Investment, he's seen the automation category from various different angles, from his previous roles and board positions and investments, where he really deeply understands what's quote unbroken. And like, obviously, it's a fast growing category. There's so much opportunity for the other companies out there. But there's sort of some fundamental sort of glass ceilings that I think we are pretty certain. And he also, I think, agreed with that, that they will hit. And like he's seen that. And like when we talked to them, he kind of like immediately understood that, like, okay, we did all this work about thinking about the core breaking points and we addressed them early on. And that gives us, I think, a long term competitive advantage that they then bought into. So I think, 
yeah, of course, you always get pushback, but it's just a function of being like very persistent, very, very persistent and getting in front of the right people. Nice. Persistence. I think that's probably like the, the ultimate word for entrepreneurs. To, <laughs> yeah. You know, right. <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Nice. And if we zoom out into the future, what would you say is the five-year vision for the company? I think I said it multiple times. For us like this, if you just think about the amount of time and efficiency that's wasted globally by this whole sort of like friction and workflows problem, that's kind of like the holy grail that we're going after. And for us, it's really if we can, you know, make every person on the planet like, you know, five to 10% more efficient, which I think we can at this point fairly confident say that, you know, a few years from now we can do that. Then this almost becomes this ultimate productivity lever, right? If you like help, you know, everyone to be five or 10% more efficient, now you kind of like help the whole field of like all the global productivity output and everything to move five to 10% faster. And I think that compounds a lot over time. So, for me, it's like very exciting to work in this productivity field because it's almost this ultimate like leverage that you can get as a founder if you really want to help the world advance as a whole. And that's really kind of like the, the goal we're going after. Now, five years from now, I think Badin will be kind of like a very powerful, you know, thousands of integrations works with all the tools that you have, works on your desktop, on multiple different mediums within your browser, is always on. And I think one thing that we're very excited about is this idea of automating the automation. So, you know, one of these bottlenecks that automation has today is a lot of people, like maybe even you, like if I ask, if I tell you like, hey, you should automate your workflows, you go like, yes, I really want to do this. But then I ask you, okay, like what's the first thing you would automate? Then it like almost always, like especially in the user interviews we did, it's kind of like blank sheet of paper problem. People go like, uh, I don't know. I know there's a lot of them, but I wouldn't know where to start. And then like, you know, by the time that you do something repeatedly, you kind of like go like, oh, maybe I should automate this. But then you go to the automation tool and you kind of like, by the time you logged in and you set it up and so on, you forgot what the thing was that you were trying to automate, you know? So it's almost this like whole, you know, sort of like setup or blank sheet of paper problem. And I think one thing that's very exciting that we're working on sort of experimentally right now is this idea of automating the automation where, I don't know if you know, like the Honey Chrome extension. Yes. That was like yeah. the, you put it in it, say it's like the coupon code thing, right? Exactly, exactly. And I think it's like, this is probably like the most brilliant user experience you can get. Because like once you install it, I don't have to do anything as a user. I don't need to think about it. I don't need to know it's there. I don't need to like literally change my behavior at all. I just go to the whatever checkout page from online stores. And like when Honey identifies that they can save me money, they will then pop up and like tell me like, hey, you know, Brad, you can save X dollars here or X percent here by putting in this coupon code. Just click this button. It'll take care of the rest for you. And I think this kind of like this type of user experience, I think is what automation should be like in the future, where you kind of do the same thing for saving time instead of saving money. So every time you do something repeatedly, you know, you copy paste data from that, you know, Crunchbase profile into your Airtable for the next podcast episode. And then every time we see you do that, we should pop up with this like nice friendly little pop up and go like, Hey, Brad, I am fine. I can save you like three minutes here. Just click this button. Let me take care of the rest for you. And I think with that, you really solved automation and you kind of unlocked it for every person out there because now you no longer need to have this automation mindset. You don't need to understand any tool. You don't need to enter any UI. You don't need to go into any workflow builder or any of the stuff. It just kind of magically takes care of itself for you. 
And that's really sort of long term, I think, where we want to go to. I think in the ed tech space, don't they call that like just in time learning? So it'd be just in time yeah. automation. Yeah, exactly. That's a that's a really cool term, actually. Yeah, we should probably like steal this. <laughs> but yeah, I'm gonna uh, go it's... trademark that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, please don't. <laughs> <laughs> I'm joking. I'm joking. But, but yeah, no, that I think exactly describes it. Yeah, I think that's sort of like where we want to take this in the future. Nice, I love it. Awesome, man. Well, I think, unfortunately, that's all we're going to have time to cover. This was a lot of fun and really enjoyed learning about what you guys are building. If people want to follow along with your journey, where's the best place for them to go? Yeah, great. So we're on Twitter with a company as uh, at Bardeen AI. Also on LinkedIn, we share updates. Also Bardeen. So it's a PLG product. So you can just go to head to like Bardeen.ai, download the Chrome extension and try it out for, for free. And then once you have it, you will see all the updates as they come along. So I think that's the easiest thing uh, to do for people. Amazing. Well, thanks again for the time and look forward to seeing you execute on this vision. Let's keep in touch. Awesome. Thanks, man. Thanks for this response. Cheers.